Welcome to Bank the Fire. I'm your host, Bob, and I started this podcast as an excuse to sit down with interesting people and share my conversations with you. I meet with entrepreneurs, CEOs, and friends to discuss what drives and motivates them, their definition of success, and what they do to keep themselves going. Today on Bank the Fire, I am so fortunate to sit down with my acupuncturist, Cesar Pueo. You're going to have to edit that part. (laughs) Or leave it in. We discuss his days as a sculptor, how he transitions into being an acupuncturist, and how meditation changed his life. Get ready for this is kind of a long one. We couldn't stop talking about how he is the only one I've ever known to be able to avoid burnout. Enjoy. Hey, we're we're here with my friend Caesar. I don't even know how to pronounce your last name. Well, so we were talking about the passing of Thich Nhat Hanh and his and what's going to happen to Plum Village and his community, and watering down the the risk of watering down the message. And uh, it made me think of Joseph Henrik, who wrote The Weirdest People in the World. Have you heard about this book? Do you know this acronym Weird? No. Weird is like what was it? Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Anyway, so Joseph Henrik writes this book about how the U.S. is, we're outliers. And we, we have this notion of how the rest of the world thinks because of, we don't necessarily understand that other people in the world think differently than we do because we have our way of thinking, right? And then... Um, I was I left off a conversation. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Dax Shepard and Monica Padman and Joseph Henrik talking about so much of what's recorded in sociology and psychology, or you know, mostly sociology and anthropology, is based on research done by weird undergrad students. Hmm. So they have this lens that they don't necessarily know that they have, in which they are viewing the. Rest- and I have a cat. <laughs> in which they don't, uh, they're viewing the world through this lens that they don't know that they have on. And so it is um, dictating how it is that we see the rest of the world without understanding context of why the culture is the way it is. For example, like infanticide or why people of other countries don't accumulate wealth or don't view it as important as, as we do. Uh, so anyway, I bring this up because talking about um, SN Guenka, of Vipassana uh, Meditation Center. I can't, I can't remember his school, but Vipa- doing Vipassana meditation and talking about Thich Nhat Hanh, talking about watering, you know, the risk of watering down the message and like, you know, having teachers that are, that can um, disseminate the message well um, and have it mean something or have it be true to the heart of the message. And Henrik talks about ancient Rome. Ancient Romans knew how to like make glass and um, build structures, and then all those artisans died, and then through however many generations, the newer generations were able to figure out how to build those things, but they were basically living amongst ruins because nobody knew what to do about it, right, until I think it was the British who then figured out how to make glass and figured out masonry again. Yeah, I'm not sure if we, who was after that. It, it's... It's interesting because you, you know, my tradition also has an older person at the head of it. Gelson uh, Gyatso is 90 now. But he, he chose a different path in how he did things because he 
he chose to stay within a lineage mm-hmm. that so it's not preceded his him yeah. exactly, mm-hmm. uh, and and will outlive him so mm-hmm. long as people are willing to to do what it takes to follow that lineage. So you know when you uh, contextualize it within history, like in the Romans, for example, the distinction between what's internal and external then becomes important, right? Because the the uh, externally being able to maintain a building or being able to make glass or all these things may even just come down to uh, uh, simple economics, right? But an internal life is just basically up to you, right? So Plum Village, wherever Kuyinga's uh, uh, meditation center is, any of our centers, you know, will depend on our hearts, right? Like what we want, because we can do it with money or without money. doesn't really matter, right? You know, if we can't maintain... An actual center, then we go to someone's house, right? And if we can't go to someone's house, we go to the park. You know, there's always going to be a way to to meet as as sangha, as community. But then it's up to your heart, right? Well, you know, if you want to keep, for example, as you said, like the, the the weird people and what they are, you know, bringing into the society, we need a lot of capital for that. Mm-hmm. That's that's really. At the heart of capitalism, um, self-perpetuating so, cycle of capitalism. Exactly. So, you know, weaving that in to society with uh, uh, within a kind of an intellectual system of of what gets written, what doesn't get written, what gets published, what you know, how schools decide uh, what is taught and what's not taught, which is becoming a, a, a an issue these days and things. Those those things are all external. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they're for an external end, and the, the the maintenance that you and I were just talking about were for internal ends, right? Because I think in the end, the only way that you survive external change, well, not yeah, the change, but also like the 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 difference in within the society, because you might have an ideal, right? And you're asking, as you said, you know, in other countries, why is it that? Um, making a boatload of money isn't as important to other people as it is here. It's like, well, maybe that boatload of money isn't available. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're on an island in the Caribbean and you can't, you can barely grow enough food to feed your own people, where's the boatload of money coming from? Unless you have happen to have like some resource that somebody else wants and is willing to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like some mineral or like oil or something like that. Yeah, Otherwise, and then even then, is the money necessarily going to the people? Correct. Right. You know, it's by go to only a few of the people. Right. So it, it is, uh, you, you know, the, the questions that are asked sometimes when you're sitting on top of the mountain and wondering why everyone else isn't on top of a mountain um, become difficult until you come down from that mountain and like start to see what's what else is going on. Right. Mm-hmm. But as long as you're up there, like you'll never know. So if you're still with us, Caesar's my acupuncturist. <laughs> but before he was an acupuncturist, he was an artist. And so I've asked you to I've asked you here today to get your starter story. Maybe you've told me a bit like how it is that you decided to go into art above anything else and then made your way into the healing arts. So I'm I'm first generation in the US. And so even con- uh, uh, as a continuity with what we were just talking about. So for my parents, they came to the US because they both wanted to sing. They wanted to be singing artists. Hmm. So, uh, but they came from two different countries. My my dad came here from Colombia. My mom came from Dominican Republic. Both of them 
were musical. Both of them really, really wanted to. It was at the time that the um, Latin jazz scene in New York was mm. at, at its height. Mm-hmm. Um, Celia Cruz was my mom's hero. And she really wanted to be a part of that scene. What were know. those guys called? The Social Club? Uh, the Buena Vista yes. Social Club, yep. uh, which was going on in Cuba, um, w- predated uh, ah. uh, w- my mom's era, but it didn't. It didn't predate her here. Like you know, those guys were all active in Cuba, but mm-hmm. they were not known in the U.S. Yeah. until uh, Ray Cuda went down there and really kind of mm-hmm. quote unquote discovered them. Right. What do you re- do? You know what decade that was? That was the two thousands. Oh God! So oh, so I was witnessing it in real time. Okay. Yeah, his his yeah. his bringing them back to yeah, 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 yeah. was was in real time, but their era was much earlier. Was mm-hmm. the fifties really? Mm-hmm. Um, for for some of them, I mean, a, a few of them were were younger. So my mom wanted to be a part of of what was going on here, which was really more uh, Tito Puente and Celia Cruz and that whole group. But she had a, a a lovely voice, but it wasn't very strong, you know. And my dad was this short, white Colombian dude who, you know, didn't fit. He wasn't Desi Arnaz, that's for sure. Um, so he 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 wasn't oh, going Desi. to like. Um, he wasn't going to set any, you know, the Palladium on fire or anything like that, or, or, or Copacabana. So um, they both ended up working in factories. Had had us uh, three kids, and. I don't think that they really had a sense of this American dream as being anything more than just not starving, mm. you know, which was their reality back in their own countries. I, you know, happiness in terms of music, happiness in terms of, you know, beautiful country, beautiful. My, my dad's from Cartagena, which is mm. on the mm-hmm. coast and is a beautiful part of the world. Mm-hmm. My mom is from uh, Puerto Plata, which is also on the coast and uh, on the water and also very, very beautiful. But both places, at least when they were growing up, were very poor. Um, so for them, the, the dream was art. The dream was creative. The dream was dream. And I don't think they lost that, even if they did end up in factories, you know, even if they did end up, you know, uh, uh, staving away to try to get us educated. Uh, so when I, I'm, I'm the youngest, so when I uh, said that I was going to Queens College uh, to get a degree in fine arts, nobody blinked an eye, you know, it was just Amazing. like, well, okay. Amazing. Great. Very so, different from the Asian experience, I guess, I must say. Yes, 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 yes. And, you know, I I grew up in Corona, Queens, uh, but my dad, my mom and dad had split up, and my dad lived in Jackson Heights. And Jackson Heights was a very, very Asian uh, uh, community at that point. Indian Asian, yeah? Indian Asian, yeah. yeah. Indian more towards Elmhurst mm-hmm. and and uh, more uh, Asian towards Jackson Heights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my dad would comment on how, all of the, it was also a very Colombian area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he would come and all the Colombian kids were out playing and all the Asian kids were in studying. Mm-hmm. And he, so we're, we're talking <laughs> about, true. you know, the 80s. And he was saying, this is going to have an impact. Right? Yeah. Very, very different. Very different mindset. Is it still Colombian? I haven't taken the seven line in so long that I don't even remember. Yeah, still it is. is. Yeah. yeah. Still has a pretty strong Colombian. Yeah. I asked because when I first started hanging out in Flushing and like, the 90s, there were still like, there were still two Italian places there that was left over from like when it was predominantly Italian, like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, or 60s and 70s. And so 
to see how that I don't and I don't know how long they were there for and to see how they finally closed and there were no Italians anymore it looked like in Queens oh, excuse me in Flushing and it was nothing but Asians and to see the stronghold still being there like how that's still not changing is incredible yeah. to me. I think it, 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 you're right. And it shifts in terms of like which country in Asia, mm-hmm. but it hasn't shifted in the fact that, yeah, it's, it's still Asian. Very yeah. Much Asian. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing that they didn't blink an eye about regarding your education for Queens College, um, fine art. And then did you start out with sculpting? You just ended with sculpting. I started out both painting and sculpting, and I ended up sculpting by the time I got to the Art Students League, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't do both mm-hmm. um, because uh, I had to I had a job during the day. And so in the evening, when I could do art, I had to choose one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really feel like splitting the day, you know, mm-hmm. especially sculpture. You, you sort of need as much time as you can. For mm-hmm. it. How um, big were your pieces? I uh, studied with a man named Barney Hodes at, uh, at the Art Students League. And he, in particular, preached working life size. Mm. So, mm-hmm. uh, oh, okay. and it was figurative. So they were large. Yeah. How, how do you even maintain that? You mean once it's done? Yes. Once it's you done in even the work, work in progress. Well, the work in progress is fun, actually. And I always was process oriented. I wasn't product oriented. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was easy to work in that way. And I would often work twice life size if, if I could. Yeah. If I but could I'm, find the space and if I had at, enough oh, uh, clay. It, okay. If you, you could know. find the space. Yeah, because the the Art Students League is set up in a way in which there's only a limited amount of clay, right? Mm. So if everyone is working life size, there's only going to be so much clay you could you have access to. But if you know a few people aren't, you know, and there is enough clay, you could build an armature big enough to do a very large piece. Mm. So I would I would you know often as often as I possibly could work as large as I possibly could, and then I would just destroy it because there was no other choice. So. You're living the transient life even before you got into meditating. Is that what I'm yeah, hearing? Basically. And for folks who don't know, because you if because you probably don't know Caesar, uh, because he's my best kept secret until now, is that he's been meditating for about sixteen years. Correct. Yeah. And so and you've been needling for twenty five years. Twenty. Twenty years. Twenty years licensed and uh five years before that I was apprenticing. Ah. Yeah, I'm, I'm counting that in because it's still part of the education, right? Yeah. So you were already working in transient. Sorry, this is blowing my mind. Little things, Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> Little things. So you were doing all this work. As you say, you're process-oriented, so it wasn't necessarily about the product. So once you had the product and went through the process, like you were satisfied, you were done, you could move on. Yeah, and, you know, I would keep the things that I thought I needed at that point in my life, I still figured I was I was going to go to graduate school and I figured I still needed uh, a certain amount of work to be able to get me into graduate school or, or even just to sell if that were possible. How could you sell yourself if you kept destroying it? <laughs> exactly. So some of it I did cast, you uh-huh. know, like so. So uh, and casting could be into anything, right? Like it could be plaster, it could be resin, it could mm-hmm. be, you know, on a, a couple of occasions it was bronze, you know. But it was, uh, there was a good school up, it's not there anymore, it was in the 60s, uh, where they would teach you how to cast in bronze, you know, Mm. so you did all the work, so that's, you know, it didn't cost you as much, because you weren't paying for the labor. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting uh, part of my education as well. But yeah, like I couldn't cast 
a piece that was twice my size. I had no place to keep it. Right. You know, so. Yes. Um, Unless you like just parked it in Central Park and no one noticed. Right. Or or if I had someone who had, you know, a, a bunch of acres somewhere, yeah. like, which I didn't, you know, so. And uh, Dia, I don't think Dia was on the map yet or that. Right. And if it was, I certainly wasn't on their map. You know, right. um, so it, I mean, just go, just bring it there and parking it. And parking no, it, like, just the, yeah, 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 yeah. Which also would have been an interesting, you know, they have, people have done things like that, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. they, they do get end up getting removed. Yeah, I just I just knew going into it that this was a process, right? And it was just going to be fun, mm -hmm. right? Like it was, and it was going to be a learning experience. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to challenge within myself the aspect of I can't, right? And that. That was always my art career was basically, you know, running into an I can't and then figuring out how I could. And so that process was always about, you know, just, you know, I developed a, um, a way uh, in that class of building up. Uh, Barney would often just preach heavily, don't become attached to any one part of your sculpture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he didn't like to see that you finished the nose, you know, long before so you did perfectly. anything else. Right. right? Um, yeah. So perfectly. And you were just completely enamored by it. And the rest of the, the yeah. sculpture wasn't even there. Like if you're going to do a sculpture of a nose, just do a sculpture of a nose. Exactly. Right. Um, so I ended up developing a way for myself of, of following that where I would make the armature. I would uh, throw the clay on. Uh, the armature, I would get the piece to a point in which there was a sense of what the pose was. This was we were working with uh, models the, the entire time. Mm -hmm. And then the moment that it got there, I would knock it down again. And then I'd put it up again and then knock it down again. Mm -hmm. And then put it up again and then knock it down again. And mm -hmm. usually like two or three times by the third time, I was pretty sure I wasn't attached to anything. Mm -hmm. And then I would just continue working. Uh -huh. And whatever I got out of it, I got out of it. So sometimes yeah. I would get pretty far because I really understood the sense of the pose. Mm -hmm. And other times I wouldn't. But all of it was a learning experience and all of it was great. Yeah. Amazing. So your teacher was already teaching you um, non-attachment. Your sculpture, sculpt, yeah. sculpting teacher is teaching you non-attachment, and then you were also practicing it in real time. Yeah, and though we weren't calling it that, mm -hmm. and sure. though he wasn't a Buddhist, nor was I at that time. Right. Um, yeah, we it's were just practicing the philosophy it. of art. His in, philosophy in, 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 in that context and in the way that I took, took it. Yeah. I didn't even know that Barney would have... Put it called, that way. Put it that way at yeah. all. But working from this place of I can't, so you could figure out how you could... Yeah. Versus, it's interesting to start have it be that starting point versus how do I do this? Yeah, because it was emotional for me. Like, I really wanted it badly, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to deal with the emotion of I've, I've hit my wall of experience. And, and because I, I always sort of leaned anxious as a, as a kid, you know, when that moment came... It, it was everything I could do to stay in the class. You know, like my default button was to run out the back door and just like, you know, give up on, just leave it there, you know, and just say like, well, that's it. You know, like I, I don't know enough to finish this piece anymore, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it was also kind of an interesting uh, exercise in dealing with your emotions, right? Like with the emotion of overwhelm in this case, right? Um, and so what do you do with an emotion of overwhelm when you're in something that you love, right? So you, you're not just going to give up because you love it, 
Yeah. But you also are at your max. So now what? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Caesar. Cool. Sure. I'm good. <laughs> See you later. Um, sorry, I wasn't. It's, it's nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> the last few times I, this time, the last time I saw you, you're just saying stuff that I'm like, oh my God, I need to hear this so badly right now. <laughs> and, um, and like talk about like dealing with the feeling of overwhelm like this. Yeah, I think it's um, it's the search. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of days ago uh, and something she said out loud that was wonderful to hear. And so true, you know, it's the, you know, it on the inside and then somebody says it out loud or you read it on a page and all of a sudden it like comes to the surface in, um, in solidity. Right. And so um, she said the starting a business is not, is a different skill set than scaling a business. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, you know yep. what I'm talking about, right? It's Absolutely. like it's like doing the armature like three times. Yep. It's like, yeah, you can keep building it. It's like, you can keep building it and tearing it down, keep building it. But you, it's after you keep doing it over and over that maybe that eventually you see that you get further and further in the process every time. Correct. <sighs> okay, so then, being immersed in something that you love, how is it that you left? Ah, well. It turns out that starvation is real. <laughs> Being a starving artist, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, New York isn't the easiest place to sort of, you, you know, and I think also because I was first generation, I, I didn't have access to um, an understanding that I could have. I always felt like I just needed to stay in New York, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, had I to do it again, maybe I would have moved someplace else where I would have had like just, you know, more land and I could have just slowly just built up, you know. A, 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 um, Especially since you knew how to cast your own work. Correct. You know, yeah. like and just build up a, a, a catalog of work and just like, you know, maybe still have other work that I was doing, but slowly, slowly, slowly build a career. And I, and I kind of saw that uh, for a little bit. I was moving art for a, a friend of mine named uh, Paul Sipos and he... He worked mostly with Pace Gallery, and so I got to meet a lot of those artists, and and I saw their process, and and got to read a little bit about their histories and stuff, and you know they they some of them were from New York, but most of them were, you know, and mm -hmm. so there was a, there was that sense of like, oh, I could have done that, right? Mm -hmm. But I only knew New York, you know, I, I was born and raised here, and I, I only it. knew it. I get it. And, you know, so I just figured, like, okay, I got to try to just make it happen here, right? And mm. life here is expensive. And, mm. and, you know, I was definitely struggling and, with and it. And for as long as you've been here, it's never stopped being expensive. Exactly, right? exactly. Um, that just never shifted. And and I we didn't have, you know, both my parents died when I was young, youngish, you know. So there wasn't, there wasn't, uh, it wasn't as if, like, there was someone behind me that was right there ready to like say like, well, don't worry, like, you know, you could come back home here or you can, mm -hmm. you know, you could like park your pieces, you know, in my house or something like that. Mm -hmm. they, they were just gone. So I think I, 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 I hit the place in moving art. Like I hit the place where I realized like I wasn't also built in terms of self-promotion mm. to, to survive in that world. Yeah, you know, the and I had side, to like the I, business I, side of artistry. Exactly, I had to come to that, um, and I didn't have such overwhelming talent that it could have overcome that. You know, like it wasn't as if I was making, 
you know, I was doing figurative work. I wasn't making anything that was mind-blowing and I wasn't doing anything that was different or anything mm. like that. And I certainly wasn't making anything that was going to be a good investment for, for anyone mm. uh, unless they had liked my work, right? So... Um, right, oh, you're talking about personal buyers. Exactly, yeah. Private buyers. Exactly. But, but then, from what I understand, the, the value of one's artwork cannot scale until you get into like galleries and brought yes. the audience. So private buyers are great to sustain you, but it, there's a ceiling until you get more private buyers right. and then you just become this inside thing. Right. But I, but to your point, not necessarily a good investment for the buyer themselves, except for pure love. Yes, exactly. Right. And and that could only get you so far right. as well, right? right? Because, you know, you're, you're also talking to a, a, a particular level of, of resource as well right yeah. right but it's um, interesting that you were talking about like this this idea that's not that my art was you know it wasn't particularly special or you know you were not in the business of self-promotion um this idea this idea that like doesn't every artist go through that i hope so <laughs> yeah, right right um and yet some of them Right. It's I guess it's the popularity contest, right, about like whoever can get their stuff in front of the most eyes and then the most interest in X, Y, Z. And it does not necessarily have to do with the work itself. Yeah. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. Right. It's if it's crap, like you won't necessarily be into it or it only right. has like some so long of a lifespan. Yeah. And if you. You know, I guess also I suppose that a, a certain part, part of it has to be ego, right? Like there's a, there's an aspect of, um, there was an artist that uh, I, I went to visit uh, in Seattle and his, I forgot what her role was. But anyway, she, she told us a story about him uh, where he would, if he had an idea and he drew it on the napkin of a restaurant, he would pay for the napkin to take it away because that was his it was his idea mm -hmm. and it was and and he didn't want that to simply be out there mm -hmm. and, and that somebody could steal it mm -hmm. you know so he'd rather pay the restaurant for the for the for the tablecloth that he just drew on because mm -hmm. he had an idea like while he was eating than leave it there and you know potentially have somebody like steal an idea from him right so so he was clearly aware of the fact that his product was more important than his process and 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 I was I had the complete opposite idea number one mm -hmm. and because of that you know I I don't know that I valued the the artwork as much I didn't feel like I needed to try to figure out a way of keeping my pieces of like making them smaller so that they could be like valued at some I just wanted to work I just right. wanted to do the art so yeah another word for your process is your yeah. experience yeah exactly I wanted the experience I loved the experience I loved like the the, the doing of it you know right. there was something that, that was not only liberating uh but edifying you know because there was a there was there was the aspect of me you know uh, so you know, being uh first generation being latino being the color that i am right I, there wasn't as much as you know my parents had reached the promised land right there was no promise that it was going to be okay for me here mm -hmm. um so yeah. i always was like uh, uh, in a sense, like uh, uh, I have a lot of dreams about rats, and I think that I have dreams about rats because they're survivors, mm. right? And they're very smart. Like mm -hmm. they figure out a way of just like surviving, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that as much as I don't particularly like them, they always come up in my dreams because it's always about you know how do you figure out a way of just surviving, 
right? And, mm-hmm. and getting through. And I felt like I always had to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was something instilled in me by my parents because, you know, we couldn't go back to where we were from. You had to mm-hmm. figure out, we finally made it here. You got to figure out a way of staying here. Right? Interesting, though, because they're like where your parents are from or were from, like if you went back to those places, you'd still be considered. In my mind, from my experience of um, where my father's from, in my mind, you'd be considered successful, right? Because oh, sure. you're coming from America. Sure, absolutely. And so it's interesting that it's reversed now that you're in the quote-unquote promised land, that even though you're here, you're still in survival mode, even though your place, your lot in life is so much greater than the par- than the lot that your parents were granted. Well, sure. I mean, going back to like your... Uh, the the context of the of, of weird right like they're you know the people that they're thinking about don't look like me right I know right right you know or like you right, right. so I mean technically we're weird but we don't look the part right right and so and we have greater context for how other people live right because we're at the bottom of the mountain not at the right. top of it so so we know what you know what the truth is down here at this level. Right. And and maybe even if you've had a taste of what it's like to be up where like they think everyone should be, you know, you realize that it's a strata that's really not possible for everyone to be in because the there plateau, isn't enough was it, resource. What do you call that? Uh, the mesa? The mesa yeah. is only so big. It's only so big. I mean, only so many people could fit on it and, and only so many people can be fed by it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that survival mode served me well. And, and at a certain point when I thought to myself, OK, what else would I like to do? You know, I knew I was good with my hands because I had been sculpting for, you know, at that point, 11, 12 years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I really gave it, my, it. A, yeah. a shot. Yeah. I really tried. Um, and so, and the other thing that I really missed was being around people because sculpture mm. is a solitary thing. Mm-hmm. You know, even if there's a model with you and stuff, that you know, they 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 stop being a model and they 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 become a vehicle. You know, towards right. like you know that process. Right. right. So you you're not talking. You're not you know trying to get to know the person. Like you just want them to. You know, <laughs> unless I were your unless I were the art model, in which case I would have tucked your ear off. <laughs> right. And 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 again, like then that would have been a different process, and that would have been interesting. Like, but most of them, you know, yeah. they. It's they just a they job. were just 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 a job, and yeah. they were just dying for the those four hours to go by. Right? Yeah, I I know I know well. <laughs> yeah. So, I wanted to do something where I would be around people because mm-hmm. my grandmother, who was the greatest influence in my life, was someone whose door was always open. In Corona, we where we lived, you know, it would often be filled at the end of, in particular, on a week night, a weekend night you know, with uh, um, drunk men who were uh, usually Dominican, uh, who stopped by her house before going home because they knew that she would give them a cup of really strong coffee to like sober them up a little bit before they had to face their wives. You know? How did she develop that reputation? You know, I have, I wish I knew. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, okay. I remember as a kid not liking it, mm-hmm. you know, because I thought it was just weird, yeah. you know. But, but as I grew older... I, you know, the the term, the Buddhist term bodhisattva, like, you know, I, mm. I saw her mm-hmm. as that. I realized, like, oh, yeah. this is what this woman was doing this whole time. And she was just providing, you know, just a little break for, like, these people. And, and often telling, trying to tell them, like, you know, maybe don't drink so much, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. without without being mean, without right. being, you know, just Not, trying to, like, yeah. get them to sort of, like. Not judging them, holding yeah, the space for them. holding the space for them. And sometimes she would feed them, uh 
but she had this 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 way of always being available to help you know if she could and and that really stayed with me my whole life you know mm. it was always there um so i wanted to be able to help in some way and i actually was uh, applying to school to be a physical therapist and i lived on st mark's place at that point uh and my roommate was dating someone who uh was seeing tom bizio uh as as an acupuncturist and um he said, oh, if you want to be a physical therapist, you should meet Tom because he practices acupuncture like a physical therapist. So mind you, I have... <laughs> Sorry, Tom has told a story in class about how he would only work with direct referrals. Yeah. Because at some point with like five degrees of separation of referrals, the person would contact him and be like, oh, hey, you're a chiropractor, right? So it's funny to hear this story of like, oh, yeah, he practices acupuncture like a physical therapist, right? Right. And that's how all the derivatives came to be. Like, oh, yeah, the guy's a chiropractor. So, right, anyway. exactly. So great. Exactly. So great. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, because, of course, as you know, like as a part of Zhengu Twina, you know, the, the Chinese do make adjustments mm-hmm. in bones and things, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, we just happen to call it something else here. So... <laughs> So I had never at that point. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking Graston. <laughs> huh? Graston versus Gua Sha. Right. Right. It's a crazy psychotherapy versus like Qigong. Right. Right. Yeah. It just It's just words. Right. Um, Same principles. Sure. Across you know, all of human experience. And sadly, you know, sometimes it gets litigious, but it doesn't really make sense. Right. Like if you're just trying to help someone, you're just trying to help someone. Right. And so long as like there isn't anything deviant about it, like, you know, why, why, why get litigious about it? Right. But the, uh, the interesting thing at that point was I had never had acupuncture in my life. I, the only thing I knew about acupuncture was that Nixon's, uh, one of Nixon's aides like had surgery in China with acupuncture as, as the anest- anesthetic. Huh. So I go and I meet this guy and he and I hit it off. Because Tom's Tom. Because Tom's Tom. And he makes me a great offer. He says, like, you know, come study with me and, uh, for a year. Like, I'm teaching this one-year class. What? Yeah. That's how it happened? That's how it happened. Because you guys hit it off. And Tom yeah. was like, hey, you want to learn this thing? Like, Sure. Wow. And he basically said, if you don't like it, just go to PT school after that. Yeah. You know, it's like, take a year, think about it, see wow. what, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And now it's 20, however many 25. years later, 25 years later, and, you know, here I am. But literally, that's how it, ha- it happened. And so I think I was in already in my second year, and that was the first time I was ever needled. I wasn't even needled that first year that I was with him. Like, I yeah. hadn't even gotten... So really... you were just, you were um, what Tom was talking about. Tom uh, tells stories about how... I'm not going to talk too much about Tom Vizio because, uh, again, if you don't know... No one else wants you to know because people <laughs> yeah. already like want so much of Tom that it's like he's got enough. How did the apprenticeship work? The you apprenticed with him for a year. Oh no! So what Tom has, has told stories about in, in his class is like most often he would learn just by watching his teachers. Mm-hmm. It was like however long before he like got to practice an adjustment. But after watching it so many times, it and the kind of learner that Tom is, it was already like 80%. I mean, I'm making these numbers up, but it was like 80% already integrated into his body before he had actually practiced <laughs> right. um, or attempted. And so if you are interning, if you're apprenticing with Tom for a year, then uh, where does Tri-State come in? 
a tri-state, a now defunct acupuncture school. Uh, that happened year, is that the second or the third year of apprenticeship? Second year of apprenticeship. So third year of apprenticeship. So I apprenticed them one year. I applied at the end of that year to acupuncture school, did not get in because the, that particular class was too full already. Mm. So then had to wait a, th- a, a one more year after that, and then I did get into the uh, that Were you waitlisted, or you had to apply again? Uh, uh, you know, I'm I don't know. I'm curious as to how Tri-State worked back then. Uh, I, I don't know how it worked back then. I mean, uh, Carolyn basically said, you know, I, I, I know who, because she knew Tom. She was like, I know who you're studying with. Just keep your apprenticeship going and stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. You, you just come back, apply, and, like, you'll get into the next class. Mm-hmm. And I took her for her word and, and did that, you know. So Tri-State came into the picture because at, the one thing that did change at that point in New York State law was there was, for a very short period of time, an apprenticeship cycle that could lead to licensure which was seven years long wow i've never and, heard of this that's amazing and, yeah and then Super uh, after the seven years yeah, yeah exactly you could I, I don't even know if there was even an exam but there was a way in which like you could certify like this person can practice and crazy but i think that um once the schools uh, and especially once the state was involved like that ended that sure. particular that's how that know. goes yeah. oh and Henrik uh, kind of talks about that in the in the weird book, actually, the capitalization of yeah. education. Because you know, once a school can make certain amount of money mm. every year, like you don't want somebody interfering with that. Right. I mean, you you stop it in the name of nepotism because, like, you know, your dad's an acupuncturist and just says, like, yeah, he's an acupuncturist, you know, and mm. you. Mm-hmm. So sure, I could see like where that would be the easy reason to give, right? But the real reason is because of the capitalization of it, you know. Once it became a licensed uh, um, profession, profession, then, you know, you needed to like get rid of that apprenticeship. Right. And regulations had to be put into place and to, to be followed. So after needling so many years, the thing I find most fascinating about you is that you've never experienced a day of burnout. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's like, how do you, how, it's uh, it's like David Foster Wallace saying, like, how's the water? To An old fish says to the young fish, like, how's the water? And they say, good. And the old fish swims away, and the young fish are like, what's water? <laughs> right. I'm not quite sure why that's true, actually. I mean, I know part of it is my personality. But I, that and being... I know, well, I think that that I I kind of let, for the most part, I let things flow over me, and 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 don't let them ever overwhelm me. Would you say that's from your meditation practice? Yes, or? Mm. by far. But again, that's you've only been doing that for sixteen years, so we're right. still another eight years. Excuse me, I'm not doing the math right. There's still another nine years before that. Yeah, but there was as we spoke earlier, my experience with overwhelm with sculpture. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I had learned a certain technique within that experience that I could take to acupuncture. I also like got to see Tom in action for uh, 13 years of, of the, you know, mm. the years that you were talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, and saw, you know, the way he processed, right? And I think finally, like, you know, it, it, loving what you do helps, right? Like I got lucky. 
basically. You know, like I, I, I've always had it. You know, I, I was head over heels in love with art and thought I will never find anything like this again. And then I fell head, head over heels in love with acupuncture. And in both occasions, like it wasn't as if I had some, you know, notion of 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 an, an ability or or a, a predestination towards either one. You know, like my my as I said, my parents were singers; they were musicians, and I never learned to play an instrument because the well, that's a funny story in and of itself. I never learned to play an instrument because the instrument I wanted to play was my grandfather's instrument. And when my grandmother offered to pay for music lessons for me, when I told her I wanted to be a drummer, she dropped the subject because her husband left her with nine kids and she was not having one of the grandchildren be a deadbeat drummer. So that that ended that uh, part of like creativity and stuff. So, you know, there's a Disney film about that. What's which it called? One? Oh, God. It's... About a deadbeat drummer? No, about uh, how uh, music was... Um banned from the family because they thought that the father had walked out yeah. on them. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but in the end, it turns out he, uh, I mean, I'm not going to give the storyline away uh, for anybody who is interested, but um, it turns out he was he was trying to come back to the family and couldn't. But they, the family didn't know that. And so oh. they, they thought he was just a deadbeat. And then oh. they banned music. That's the Mexican one. Yes. What's the name of that? Coco? Coco. Yes. Coco. Yes. Right. So interesting. You're telling me the story of Coco, basically. You, you like basically, you live the life yeah. of Coco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no villain involved. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't Coco. It was mm-hmm. Just you know, my my granddad did. Your grandfather fight. was the villain. Yeah, he really pretty much was. So there was that. I mean, I think that there was there, there were the fact that I just felt so lucky, you know, in finding these both of these professions, but this one that I'm in now maybe in some ways helps me not to feel burned out. You know, there's just enough love there of what I do that I that that at the end of the day, like I don't I don't bring anything home with me. Mm-hmm. I never go home thinking about a, a a case or anyone. I sometimes start a day thinking about someone that I'm about to see, but I don't ever bring my work home. Mm-hmm. You know, I go home and then I'm who I am at home. I'm not, you know, an acupuncturist still practicing acupuncture when I get home wondering, like, should I have done this or shouldn't I have done that? Or mm-hmm. So there is no moment for me to burn out, really, because everything is is in the context of being present only to what's in front of me. I mean, that is the meditation part of, of things, obviously. But it also was a part of sculpting, right? Because there was, um, you know, there was a way in which you, when you're sculpting, there is no... I had to deal with overwhelm when I felt I the, 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 that um, I had reached a wall, but there was nothing I could do about it if the piece wasn't in front of me. And I, I, I mean, I worked from home occasionally, right? But I always had to go to a studio. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once the piece isn't there, like you really, there isn't anything you could, you couldn't even really visual, you could visualize, but it, it was pointless because like you wanted to then get in there and start doing it. Like, so unless I was willing to get dressed again and go to the studio and open up and start working, you know, so I did learn even there to just drop it. Wow. So how did you get into meditation then? So I grew up Roman Catholic, you know, I've talked about that. It's unavoidable. Right. Went to Roman Catholic boarding school, wow. which okay. is a whole other level of... Extra. Yeah. 
and and I have always considered myself very religious. You mm. know, I, I like ritual. So there's something about Roman Catholicism that was that in the ritual of it was satisfying. But the message didn't stay with me in a way that was sustainable, I would say. But there was always something within Asian culture, Asian uh, uh, ritual that interested me, right? I I was the weird kid that would watch Kurosawa films, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to whatever else. I mean, there are movies that people talk about iconically that I never saw because I was too busy watching Kurosawa, you know, just odd Japanese films and things. Um, Cinematic, let's say. Cinematic Japanese yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. And Taoism was important to me in college, at Queens College. Like, I, I, I read the Tao Te Ching for the first time as a freshman in college. Because? It was there. It was on the bookshelf, you know, and uh-huh. I liked the cover. Okay. Literally, that was yeah. all it was. Like, yeah. it was a nice cover, you know. Yeah. And that's enough. Yeah, I just picked it up and I read the first line stanza of it. You know, the way is not the way, you know. And, and I was like, okay, this is cool. Mm-hmm. And I just kept reading it, and I just kept, you know, trying to memorize them and things. And read a little bit about Buddhism, but, you know, the translations back then were also a little tough. Like mm-hmm. when, I, when I teach sometimes now, like, I'll talk about that, like how the translations were pretty rough. So um, in, in the Four Noble Truths, like the way it was translated back then was life is suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. It was there was no it was just a simple, straightforward sentence mm-hmm. where now it, most of the time when it's translated is, is it, uh, it translates to in life, there is suffering, mm-hmm. which creates more option for you. Much. Right. Perspective, so right? a lot more perspective versus nihilism. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, I would read it and be like, I wasn't really interested in that. Like I had already been raised Roman Catholic. There was enough nihilism in there like to last me for the rest of my life. You know? <laughs> so 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 I, I I kind of, you know, would dabble into it, you know, because there was the whole thing of meditation and there was the whole thing of compassion that was interesting to me. And there is a meditative, uh, um, an entire meditative side to Catholicism that isn't spoken about, about much, but it is a contemplative mm-hmm. uh, uh, world. And not spoken of mostly because it ends up being in monasteries and things, and it mm-hmm. doesn't really get disseminated out into the public much. Right. And you have to seek it out. You have to seek it out. Uh, I think now it's probably even more available. Yes. I mean, and, and I'm not even Catholic. I just know there is a place there in, like, is. Genesee, New York, right, right, where you right, can right. go hang and out and... Have a retreat and right. things. Because they've seen the popularity of it, and they've right. had to open up to these things, I think. So then, fast forward, and now I'm in the Art Students League, where I meet uh, uh, Elizabeth Silver, who would become sort of like my mom, you know, and her and her husband. Um, we first met actually at SUNY Purchase, uh, which I was going to for just like non-degree classes that they would have for, for what, adults and stuff. What were you doing in SUNY Purchase for non-degree classes when you lived here? Uh, so I, I finished Queens College and um, like I said, I didn't have like the greatest prospects coming out of there, right? I oh, wanted no, to keep you didn't on say doing. That. Yeah, I mean, I finished Queens College and like, I just, you know, I had a degree in art. 
you know, and that wasn't going to get me very far. Mm-hmm. There were no, back then you, you you bought the New York Times and stuff and there was the job section of the Times and you looked in there and stuff and there was nothing on the artists, right? Like there were no right. job listing on the right. artists. Right, versus now. Versus now where there's still no job listings on the artists. <laughs> it's about um, you know. It, it hasn't shifted that much either. But I needed I needed to get some, I needed some way to make a living. I, my, my parents were totally fine with me having a degree in art. But they also were very clear that, you know, you you have to, like, have a job, right? Interesting um, that they didn't necessarily make the correlation. No, because I think that for them, you know, what you love is what you love. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, like, I think that they would have loved me to have become successful at what I loved doing. But it wasn't, they certainly didn't understand the system here and how galleries work and how, you know, collectors work and all those things. To be able to say like, okay, so now you're going to do this. You know, they just figured, you know, I would figure that out. Um, it was a part of my adulthood of like mm-hmm. figuring that out. They certainly figured it out. Somehow, right? Yeah. So I took a job at the Archdiocese of New York in uh, a town uh, called Larchmont, New York in Westchester as a cook. <laughs> so I did that for okay. a couple of years. That's and, so random, Caesar. <laughs> you know, when, uh, uh, while I was there, like I saw that SUNY Purchase was only 30 minutes away. Mm. So I started taking classes there at night, you know, just to because I wanted to still do art, right? Mm-hmm. So I had my job, mm-hmm. which is what was important. And then um, I was able to just keep on doing my art, you know, at, at night, you know, mm-hmm. while making a little bit of a paycheck. Uh, and and so I met Elizabeth there, and then her and I started coming down from Westchester every day, every evening, to the Art Students League and taking classes there, because we had heard about Barney. Mm-hmm. So that's how that turned out, the, the SUNY Purchase piece. At the Art Students League, Elizabeth befriended this woman who became a, a close friend of mine, and she was the person who first introduced me to Kadampa Buddhism. Mm. A good... 15 years before I actually undertook it. So I've been meditating for 16 years, but I knew about Kadampa Buddhism probably 25 years before. That sounds about right. I mean, I, I may mean, I say that. Um, I'm projecting. That was I knew about Vipassana meditation early 20s and didn't attempt it until 10 years later. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, I didn't even correlate it. Mm. I, the thing that happened with her name at that point was Tess. She then ordained. Mm-hmm. And and that was the crux of it. When she was Tess, it was just another thing Tess was doing. Mm, mm-hmm. Because Tess was uh, just a wild animal. You know, she just was very, very untamed. And she just would just come, like, she would just decide to do something, she would do it. So she arrived from Taiwan, not knowing English, deciding that she was going to be an artist here and that she would make it. And that's what she was going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, met someone here, married them and was moving on with her career, found this book by uh, uh, my teacher, uh, which is one of the most difficult books he's written, and just decided I was, she was going to read it from cover to cover and practice every meditation in it. So for me, like it was like, oh, Tess is just being Tess. Mm-hmm. Right? But then she ordained. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. She's serious. She's serious. This isn't just some extracurricular activity. Right. Mm-hmm. And... I figured anyone who could tame that wild animal <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Yeah. is worth a second look. Uh-huh. So so that's how I came back to Kadamba Buddhism mm-hmm. um, and started really practicing uh, um, 
fully. But from the time she introduced you to it to the time she ordained, that was about 10 years. About 10 years, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it took about 10 years to tame the, for her to tame her animal. Yeah, and I think it was, well, there was a lot to tame there, right? Because now you're talking about someone who's ordaining who's married, right? Mm. So there's also, you know, at at a certain point they had moved from New York to Boston and they were there and they were practicing, they were both practicing and they were both uh, um, active in it. And originally both Tess and David had planned on ordaining together. Mm -hmm. But but David wanted kids, you know, and Tess wanted what meditation had, you know, mm-hmm. so at a certain point they had to choose and stuff. And David, you know, remarried and has a, a kid and they're still very close. And um, But Gilton, which is her ordained name, Gilton became Gilton and you know, she just became another person, basically. <laughs> a piece that I neglected to mention regarding your um, not burning out. Mm is all the self-care that you were doing once upon a time. Once upon a time, you're working, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, five days a week, seven clients a day, 90-minute sessions each. It's a long day. Yeah. But in that, you were trading with, you were receiving craniosacral, you mm-hmm. were receiving acupuncture, and you were receiving... Rolfing. Rolfing. And you were doing each of those three times a week, or was that like every, uh, every you know, one... You know, one week, the next, the next week. Cranial work was every week because we were, um, my friend Christina and I were, were were trying to learn more about cranial work. Uh, and then she was the person you were trading with. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she, so oh, she I'm and sorry, I. Caesar, can you back up? Most people don't know what craniosacral therapy oh. is. So craniosacral therapy is actually a part of osteopathy. Um, oh, really? Which I didn't oh, right. know. I forget about that. Yes. Right. I, I mean, I. Tom had taught me a version of cranial psychotherapy that is the upledger technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was a part of acupuncture. because Oh, because like Tom said, taught you. Because yeah. Tom taught me, so right. I just thought it must Versus be part Tom of acupuncture. Versus Tom being Tom, which is like a freaking dictionary encyclopedia of like body mechanics, Correct. different modalities, and yeah. martial arts. And all of it, you know, because I was naive to all of it, you know, I just figured it was all acupuncture. It was all a part of it. Amazing. You know. Yeah. So it was another student of Tom's who was then taking the craniosacral therapy a little bit further. And she had started going up to Boston to study with a biodynamic craniosacral therapy uh, group, Franklin Sills. And so, uh, but to go back to your question, like but craniosacral therapy as a part of osteopathy is, is basically about the, the, the matrix that creates, in essence, everything we see Right, so it, it ends up getting tied up, tied in a little bit with physics in that sense, but but as as body work, it, it's the matrix that that creates and keeps human beings uh, in a homeostasis of health. And this is why most people don't know about it because it. Right, I mean that definition like, unto itself is like super esoteric. Yes, makes sense to us because we're working with bodies all the time. But sure. like, if you're a financier, office person. Uh, I mean, I think a simpler way to, not a simpler way to define it, but a simpler way to describe it would be holding space for someone so they can promote their own healing. I mean, that is inherent in lots of modalities, but I think at the foundation of it, without overthinking about what craniosacral therapy is to you and I for for the client themselves, it's like we're holding space. Yeah. I think that, 
You could also go further and say that within craniosacral, there are step downs. Mm. So there's the biodynamic, there's the biofunctional, and then there's the biomechanical, right? Mm -hmm. So so the easiest way to describe it to a patient, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have used that definition with a patient either, right? Would be that mechanically, like we're made up of rhythms, like we we are a rhythm, like we we're subject to the rhythm of the moon, for example. We're subject to like the rhythm of the sun. We're subject to the rhythm of a subway train running underneath mm-hmm. our building mm-hmm. and what that does. You know, all of it shifts something within us, right? Because the 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 presence of fluid inside of us is easily rhythmic, like or or susceptible to rhythm. So and this uh, is still separated from heart rhythm, breathing rhythm. Absolutely. And so mechanically, like we are, uh, we have a rhythm within us that can be palpated, right? And that mechanically helps us to maintain health. Mm-hmm. So that, in combination with acupuncture, then sort of like helps to uh, uh, sustain the, the the each each treatment a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Trying to talk about craniosacral therapy by myself is like I kind of yes, pretty much impossible. Pretty much impossible because yeah. it's it's not that it's like when you when we have our hands on a person like we feel what's happening, but it's so subtle. It's not it's not. I mean, it's kind of like a mountain being made. The mountain's growing every year. You don't see it, and only geologists or topographers really care or notice that the mountain is changing. But that's kind of what it feels like yeah. when doing craniosacral therapy. It's like so quiet, so gradual. Yeah, it, so can, it can be. Yeah. So the, what I would add is like if you're using your same uh, analogy. You know, if, if if it's more mechanical, then it's more like if you went up there, this, the, the biomechanical craniosacral therapist are probably going to hate me for saying this. But anyway, it's like going up to that mountain and bulldozing a part of the mountain that you think shouldn't be there. Really? Sure. Because you can practice craniosacral therapy in a way that's mechanical enough to move things. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the early uh, uh, practitioners right. of craniosacral therapy, like right. they would do things like, you know, tying things to their their head to try to like see if they could stop the rhythm from fo- oh my god to see like what would happen. Wow, right? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I mean they were they were scientists. Like, Forgive they us, really folks. Were, this is really body workers getting yeah. into a deep hole about yeah. craniosacral yeah, yeah, yeah. therapy versus now. Where I mean, still there are people who practice it mechanically. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Sure, because let's say if you know that something is off and you know that if you did this one technique, it would yeah. fix it. You know, then you might do that, right? Well, if it, you know, when you step back, and this is that step back piece, if you're more about function, that you might actually then. Uh, instead of the the mechanics of it, like you might uh, uh, tweak something a little bit and see if like the body will take the 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 rest of the mm. the, the that and run with it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just take the tweak and run with it. Mm-hmm. And and if you're dynamic, you're gonna let the body do whatever it wants to do. Yeah, and you're gonna which like is open up, you know, in essence, how you like practice. You, exactly, which is how I practice, where you just open up uh, to the point where and create enough space where the body makes a decision, you know, and you stay out of it. Right, which is in line with how Tom practices uh, bony adjustments. Correct. Right, which is like uh, bony adjustments uh, in, in I was going to say in Chinese culture, but as you say, it's not just Chinese culture. It's osteopaths, chiropractic yeah. work, um, whatever. Uh, 
doing bony adjustments. He was trying to convey to his class, the, uh, the class I was in, that it's not about the adjustment, right? It's not about the pop. It's not about the crack. It's, uh, it's not about putting the bone in place so much as creating that space so that if the bone wants to go back, it will go back. And has, it's not that it, the practitioner has nothing to do with it, but the practitioner has nothing to do with it. The body will adjust itself as it wants to adjust itself. Uh, that's yeah. So to see this, to see hear and see this through line from you and from Tom, like yeah, you're one of his students, so this makes sense. Right. Again, going back to like the idea of what happens when you teach as a mm-hmm. lineage, as mm-hmm. opposed to just sort of like having something written down and letting everybody do whatever they want to do mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm I come from his. It makes perfect sense your description to me because I come from his lineage. You know, mm-hmm. it's exactly how. He taught me how to uh, work with adjustments and, and how, you know, I, I, I don't have any other way of seeing it. How did we get here? We were talking about craniosacral, but then before we were talking about craniosacral, uh, at some point I had to stop you because you were talking about craniosacral, and then... Um, you were talking about burnout and, like, how... Mm, the, all the self-care that you, yeah. that you made a point to receive regularly. Yeah, so the, the, the cranial was definitely a, a weekly thing. And then um, acupuncture, that was that was fairly easy to to make it weekly because that would be almost always the on Fridays at the end of that week, the whole week would mm-hmm. be the last thing I would do. Um, but there were times where it was every other week, uh, and then roughing was also another uh, trade, and that was also uh, that shifted. Uh, at first, it was we would do uh, uh, trades every week and we would work on each other and then there were there was a point where you know, we would alternate like I would work on her and then she the following week she would work on me and and now we're back to like where we are trading uh every other week though um and we work on each other mm-hmm. but there was that there was that self work but I think that the other self work that was important at that uh point was my deepening into my meditation practice because that also is self, uh, um, self, self-care, self self-repair. I think I've asked you before, but I can't remember what your answer was. Um, the Having meditated for 16 years, being serious, what is, different question, you've been serious about it for the last five years. What does that look like? Like, what do you mean by like being serious about it? I think- Versus um, like what you did the first 11 years. Yeah, it's because the first 11 years you're, you know, meditation is, you begin by thinking that it is a thing. It's the this answer. Gonna, oh, man, man, when people think meditation is the answer, it kills me. <laughs> yes. And that's, 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 that's it, you know. So there has to be a place, there had to be a place, because this is personal to me, there had to be a place for me in which I relaxed into the idea that it was always inside of me as opposed to something that I needed to find outside of myself. I spent the first 11 years thinking that there was something outside of myself that I had to acquire, ingest, understand, and then I would be. And until I relaxed that attention, sometimes I, 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 I compare it to a helium balloon, that, that 
you, you, you relax your attention on the string and you watch it just like kind of soar up, 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 up. And, and you're thinking that, you know, that, up, that in that kind of getting lost into the spaciousness of stuff, you know, that you're going to like find that thing, right? That something will like start to uh, uh, um, trickle down and stuff. And then you, you suddenly like you'll get like a spark and, you know, there you are. When I just finally just like let go of the string and just relax the idea that there was anything out there, then naturally what arose within me was the natural peace that exists in all of us, right? And then I was face to face with it. And and then there was again that moment of overwhelm that I'm used to in everything that I've ever done, like where I've run into this place where like I no longer know what I'm doing, right? And And, and the last five years has been really basically about me settling into the I don't know, accepting it, and, and actually embracing it. Now, when you say the natural peace within, we're talking about P-E-A-C-E, mm-hmm. not the P-I-E. Mm-hmm. I before you accept for C. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So you after 11 years of meditating, you came to that place of experiencing the natural peace within. Yeah, realizing that it, that that what I've been looking for was always inside of me. Interesting. I say interesting because I feel like I've come to that realization a few times. I mean, it, when I'm, I think what I'm saying is I don't imagine that realization was binary, right? It was the you knew and then you, you didn't know and then all of a sudden you knew and that was it. Right. Yeah, no, it's definitely not. Do you remember what that process was like? This, like the going back and forth because it's not binary? Well, at first you make it binary, right? You first, you do make it that, right? So like you look at in many ways. So, so just a session, for example, right? There's like, you know, you know first 11 years, meaning a meditation session. Right, right, okay. So, so I sit, right? And then, you know, I'm thinking within that meditation session that things are going to go a particular way or I'm hoping that they're going to go a particular way. Oh, uh-huh. Attachment. And, yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And then, you know, the rest of your life goes on. So that's binary. There's the meditation session and then we call it the meditation break, right? Mm-hmm. The, the everything else. The everything else. Um within the session itself right like there there's the moment in which like you really do let go and sometimes those can be really experientially like profound right mm-hmm. um and then there's the moment that like you're just thinking about what you're going to cook for dinner mm-hmm. monkey mind let's say and and you know that's binary right like there's a way in which you're you as as the meditator are observing and saying those are two different minds mm-hmm but right? like this is the mind in me that's not concentrating and this is the mind in me that is concentrating, right? Or is mindful or is meditating, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the end you realize that there is no separation of session to break or of, you know, mind that is concentrating or not concentrating. Everything just appears and then what you do with the appearance is completely up to you, Right. Uh, um, if the appearance of like what I'm going to cook for dinner arises, whether I pay attention to it and follow it is completely up to me. 
And if the appearance of a very profound sense of the entire universe, you know, and and me peacefully floating within it arises, what I do with it is completely also up to me. I could attach myself to that and say, this is what I want to happen all the time in my life. Or I can let go and just allow it to either happen or not happen, right? Depending on experience and depending on the amount of work that you want to put into it. And depending on like how willing you are to deal with the overwhelm of what that feels like, you know, and 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 how it can arise so suddenly, and then and, and then you're there, you're in it. Like now, what do I do? Like I want that all the time. Like how do I get that all the time? Like that's overwhelming, right? That that is in, in essence the overwhelm that I've dealt with for the last five years, right? And enjoyed, you know, because like there's nothing wrong with wanting that. But can I handle the disappointment of not having it all the time? Because that's more, more, to me anyway, because again, going back into my being process oriented, that to me is much more interesting than the experience itself. Because the experience itself, I know it's possible. I've always known it's possible, right? So, you know, having it is like, it's great. It is wonderful. It's like, but what am I doing on the break? What am I doing when I'm in New York and dealing with all the craziness, right? What am I doing when I'm with my patients? Like, am I still underlyingly holding that space and, you know, dealing with each appearance that arises from that place? That to me is fun. And that, and that, and I really do call it fun. You know, like yeah, that to right. me is fun. Right. You've mentioned when you when your partner's about to go meditate, you say, go have fun. Have and a I, lot of fun. I totally, it, she, I think, what would you say? She rolls her eyes? She rolls her eyes. But so. I, I understand, <laughs> I get what you're, I guess I, I don't know. It's, um, I think when I'm in this very moment, talking about being present, right? I think what I'm struggling with is the notion that I may be a serious meditator because of what you were just saying. It's like, yes, I understand that being that sensation of being one with the universe is possible. And then mind is also possible. And it's like, oh yeah, these are not necessarily separate things. But as you say, it's what I do with both of these experiences that matters and then hanging out in that space. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I'm struggling in this moment with considering myself a serious meditator because when you say go have fun, I totally understand what you're talking about. And, and so this notion of people not being able to meditate or saying that they can't meditate, it's like, oh, I understand where you're at too because it's that this expectation and the overwhelm that they experience of whether it's the monkey mind uh, overwhelm that they're experiencing or the, um, the desire for something, uh, that overwhelm that they're experiencing. And so... God, does this make me a serious meditator? Could be. If you're having fun. You know, and I mean, we talked about this on, one of, on another occasion where we talked about um, the, the process having a certain amount of structure. Yes. Right? And like, can you have fun within structure? Like, I can, you know, because I, I do like process, right? Some people look at meditation as, a, as an opportunity to be free of structure. Right. As if as if you you no longer have to be mom or you don't have to be like a husband or you know, right. it's have liminal to be space like, versus correct. like the, just continuous, uh, the continuation of space. Right. But that isn't that isn't Buddhism. It's not Buddhist teachings. Right. Like, you know, he he didn't become enlightened and then disappear. Right. he became enlightened and then actually taught. Right. He like became a, he stayed human. Right. Like he he did not suddenly you know, transform into something that wouldn't look to you and me ordinary, 
even though he was in fact uh, in in a, in a different space the whole time. Yeah, right? his carapace was the same. For Absolutely. our eyes, it looked the same. Absolutely, internal work totally different. Totally different. Yeah. You know, uh, which is why I said that it it wasn't until it became internal that I really felt like I was really meditating, mm-hmm. right? where I let go of like what is this going to look like from the outside, because mm. I kept thinking that it would look different. You know. Oh. It, like literally look different. Sure. Hmm. Sure. I don't know what that's like. I, it's torturous. <laughs> I can imagine it is. This this notion that all of a sudden you'd uh, turn into, um, what's it, the uh, metaphysics of Jesus. As it were, yeah, exactly. Like that there would be like some act that would suddenly transform you into like that, that metaphysics of Jesus, as you said. I think that there, that that it Maybe more subtle. I mean, I wasn't expe- expecting a stigmata or anything like that. But um, uh, there, there was there was definitely an aspect of it where, like, I felt that in the connection to the universe, mm. that there would be something that would be returned from the universe, right? And it really wasn't until, I, you know, and again, like going back into some aspects of physics where you start to real, really understand microcosms and macrocosms, mm-hmm. where, where you, you really have to see like that the universe has always been returning, right, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, to you, because it's within you, right? Like where there's... Um, within us or the idea that we are made of it, right? Exactly, which is, which is both not only like a poetic way of saying it, but it's actual, right? Because right. there's like, what, a couple of teaspoons of the Big Bang in every single human being or something right. to that amount i'm not sure uh, positive about the amount but we're made up of all the things that like made made up the big bang right, right. like the the, right. the the different uh, uh minerals and stuff like that and chemicals that are in it like are, are within it so we're it's constantly given back to us it's always right. been there right mm-hmm. it, it's just when we get caught up in this idea it's part of 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 samsara right like it's a part of our suffering like we because we're always suffering we're always looking for things to be different Mm. as opposed to accepting the way things are and then seeing if like we can change our 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 point of view towards it right and that is where like i was you know for those first 11 years and yet for all that time that you were meditating i think we've discussed this it's it wasn't like some we're talking about what's something that sounds like a big shift, but it wasn't a big shift. You got there gradually, and, and now you're uh, living that experience. Yeah. But even within that time, people around you notice the difference. Yeah, that's actually the only way that I ever even knew that things had changed. Do you know what it is that they saw that was so different? A lot less road rage. Mm, right. That was like the one that I thought was the most, you know... Did you notice it or they notice they it? They noticed it. You didn't notice that you didn't have road rage anymore? No. Wow, okay. That's amazing. I mean, I only say this because, like, at some point I noticed I didn't have road rage anymore. I was driving Tom home after class one day, and I was, like, talking about how I love driving the city. People do not like driving the city. And I don't understand because I'm at this place where driving the city forced me to find Zen. Yeah. Right, I couldn't. Ex- I couldn't live in that space of road rage all the time, and be here and drive. Like, if I was going to suffer that much while driving, I should have just gotten rid of my car. But if I'm gonna keep my car, then I need to make peace with it. Yeah, was the idea. Right. 
And and that means all kinds of things. Like, you know, make peace with the fact that every time you park it, that it's going to, you know, probably get dinged up. And mm-hmm. all the, I mean, there's there's all kinds of rage that comes around owning anything, right? right? You know, the new iPhone, you know, like uh, the first time you drop it. The materials, you know, exactly, All right, the things right, that right. are there. It has um, to look a certain way. Yeah. Right. And, and, and peace looked a certain way for me mm. in those first 11 years, mm, right? Got it. And yes, yes. And that yes. was what actually shifted gradually in, uh, uh, gradually enough that I didn't even notice it. Is it because you were searching for it, but you weren't searching for it? I, and I, I say it this way because this year has been pretty pivotal to me in um, understanding the lens through which I was seeing the world that I didn't realize that I was seeing the world through. Mm. So it, it does not feel so gradual for me. It feels like all these years that I've been meditating um, and looking for the thing that you're looking that you too were looking for, like it's 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 not that it's come to pass, but it has come to pass. And and you could have seismic shifts. You know, it's not that that isn't possible. Russell like, Brand said it. He said, if you are on a spiritual journey, expect to have mental breakdowns. Yeah, yeah. I think that, and they don't. Again, even those don't need to look seismic. They mm-hmm. don't need to look dramatic. Right. They don't need to. You know, they may feel that way. They may feel that way. Absolutely. Right. Uh, or they certainly. May, you know, I think that there's a there's a there's a there's a place in any meditation practice that I've ever, uh, um, you know, spoken to uh, practitioners about, where where there's where there you you just it feels like you're just in a really dark tunnel, mm-hmm. and and you keep you 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 keep walking because you. If you if you believe the Dharma, you know that there is a light there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But but you do have doubts. You definitely have your doubts, right? And then right. within those doubts, right, it's like, you know, again, that's that another aspect of overwhelm. Like, you know, what do you do with those doubts? Like how do you work with them? What how do how you how do you manage your way through it? One of our other guests had said the person with the greatest doubt uh, is usually the one with the greatest faith. Right. And so, yeah, it's this it's like talking about Buddhism and like understanding the teachings and the possibility of karma and the possibility of um, uh, other lives and like, and you're in the tunnel and it's like, the tunnel feels like forever, because you know if you're noticing the passing of time versus understanding that it could be just a construct of the mind, and then the idea of like, is this my karma, right? Right. Am I destined to be in what uh, you know? Catholic translation is purgatory forever. Right, right, and uh, but that's training grounds, right? Again, like for somebody like me, in the process oriented types, you know, like that's training grounds. You know, like it's where you get to do your work, right? And I like working. You know, that's possibly also why I don't burn out because I like working. Mm-hmm. But um, the greatest doubt and how. It, that ends up creating faith, though, comes from the work you're willing to do with the doubt. Mm-hmm. It's easy to doubt and then simply, you know, drop it. But it's much more interesting if you pick up that doubt and and work with why it appears that way to you. Which goes back, because yeah. That, that that stays with like with with the the Buddhist teachings on inherent existence, right? Like, like doubt, doubt doesn't exist out there as this thing that's that's waiting to trip you up. Mm-hmm. 
right? It's still a part of you, right? Like it's doubt to you. Somebody else like will run across that same exact thing and be like, yeah, karma, no big deal. Like, right. Past and future lives, no big deal. I can handle that. Like, you know, and for someone else, they'll be like, well, game changer. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. There's no way that that's possible. I'm not, I'm not continuing on this path anymore. But to go back to the beginning of our interview, it's mm-hmm. that sitting there with the, was sitting with that sensation of overwhelm versus running out the back door. Mm-hmm. Running, it's, it seems like a recurring theme in your life. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, it's, it's our recurring theme, though, mm. right? You mean the human experience? Exactly. You know, there, there's, there's a way in which um, we could look at the human experience as, as like a prison, you know, mm. in which like as human beings, you're on like the, the let's call it the white collar floor, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and it all seems really okay. Right. Like, you know, you just kind of like, you know, we're doing better than like animals. We're doing better than, you know, like mm. someone or, or within, even within like our own human experience. Like, you know, as Americans, like we're doing better than someone who's, let's say, in Ukraine right now, for example. So so we're, we're constantly like uh, um, negotiating our level of suffering, as it were. Right. Like we're constantly navigating like our level of like uh, of discomfort, like, you know, bargaining with it in self and so there is a, it's it is a, a running game as it were and that like you know like okay like but i'm i'm at least i'm not this you know mm-hmm, at least mm-hmm. it's not that right you know? comparing or, up or comparing down correct and out of that temporarily having a little bit of satisfaction mm-hmm. knowing full well that like you know that wheel is going to spin again and you're just going to run into the next thing that is not satisfactory. Yeah. And then you're going to have to negotiate that again. Right. And so not necessarily in the next life. And probably more likely than not right here. Right. right? Because the moment like you start that process, then it, it, it's, it really is that far side commercial of like the hamster wheel, right? Like, you know, the epiphany is like, just stop running. running. Right. Just stop running, you know. And that's, I guess, where we could say the meditation practice comes in. And, and and where that yeah. that eleventh year that transformation happened, right? Mm-hmm. Like wh- like I said, it wasn't it wasn't uh, um, dramatic, you know. But where I finally realized, like, oh, I just I'm just not going to run anymore. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, all right. So this conversation was above and beyond. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. And that concludes our season one of Bank the Fire. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Cesar Poeo. Please check out our other episodes. If you haven't listened to them already, you can find all of our episodes on your favorite streaming platforms. Please follow us and check us out on our social media. You can find the links in the show notes for any announcements for season two, which we have already started recording. And if you'd like to support the work that we're doing here, if you find that you are enjoying our conversations, please check out our Patreon. Any support is greatly appreciated. Love you. Grateful for you. Okay, bye. Until season two.